Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome to the autumn-winter season of our historical lectures programme. As regular customers know, our programme in these lectures is, is very varied, right across the whole field of aeronautics. And tonight we're on the flying of aeroplanes. Not just any old aeroplane, or perhaps I should say not just any new aeroplane, uh, we're on flying of historic aircraft. Um, and we have with us a very experienced and distinguished test pilot who has included a lot of this type of flying in his activities. Um, Andrew Sefton, Andy Sefton, chief pilot of the Shuttleworth collection, and uh, he's in his eighth year in that position. Um, he's also done several years with the Harvard team, chief pilot for a number of Spitfire operations and guest appearances with several Warbird operations. And he's been a display authorization examiner for some 10 years. He started with an RAF career, and this included a great diversity of aircraft types, um, including test pilot tours. Uh, he followed that with um, a period at Rolls-Royce. Um, Rolls-Royce at the Bristol end um, as a test pilot for the Harrier with the uprated Pegasus 1161 engines. And in that time, he, uh, he, he, he acquired a couple of world records for time to climb in a V-Stoll aircraft, and those, I think, still stand today. Um, since 2001, he's served as a test pilot for Marshals of Aerospace, another very well-established company. And he's flying a number of aircraft types, both turbine and piston-engined types with marshals. But this evening, he's going to talk mainly about flying historic aeroplanes. And I'm sure we shall have a very interesting evening. Andy. Thank you. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, how many have heard this talk before? Just a matter of interest. At least one. <laughs> okay, that makes the job easier, I have to say. Um, it's quite a vast subject, flying of historic airplanes. Uh, what my aim this evening will be is to give you a feeling of the differences between flying modern airplanes and the older types. Uh, I'll look at one or two machines in depth, uh, one or two others a little bit more lightly, but just to give you a feel of the different skills uh, that are required for flying historic airplanes. There we go with the title. Um, first thing I'd like to say, though, is that I've illustrated the talk with photographs that have been taken at Old Warden. Um, if it wasn't for the shuttle of the collection, I wouldn't be standing here. So we need to think of that in the background. But we also need to think of the photographers. 
um, whose work I'm using this evening, and in no particular order, uh, Steve Jefferson, Damien Burke, Nick Blaco, and Rob Lee. Work, at least, should appear this evening. Maybe one or two others, and uh, if you're here tonight and your work is up there and I haven't acknowledged it, then I do apologise. Uh, but they've allowed me to use their work this evening. Now, on to historic aeroplanes. Different but not dangerous. People often say it must be dangerous. You get lots of engine failures, you get lots of crashes, and so on and so forth. It's not a dangerous occupation. Two reasons. When aircraft started um, back in the early part of the last century, people built their own aeroplanes, uh, they designed their own aeroplanes, they learned to fly them while they were testing them, and they achieved, in the end, relatively safe flight. We lost one or two on the way, we lost a few aeroplanes, we lost a few pilots. But in the event, they taught themselves to fly as they were testing their aeroplanes. So it can't be difficult. So why do we need, now need 250-odd hours before we get a commercial license? It's just a thought. <laughs> and the other point that I like to put across is that teenagers used to take these airplanes to war with minimal training. The average British teenager went to war successfully in the SE-5A, Sopwith Camel, Spitfire, Hurricane, Lancaster, so on and so forth. Now, I don't want to deride the average British teenager. Uh, we were all one once. Some of us are still teenagers at the moment. But it does mean that the average person can achieve flight, safe flight in these airplanes. So it's certainly not difficult. However, aircraft, historic aircraft today become part of the British heritage or part of our own national heritage and therefore need to be husbanded. So... We need to fly them sympathetically to the types in question, which really means that if we do them in display, and really that's what all this is about, is displaying the aircraft to the public, we must show the sight and the sound of the aeroplane and not the pilot that's flying it, which means you need a specific type of pilot. Historic aeroplane, number one, D'Souza. We need to select a pilot with skill, with the right knowledge and the right attitude. Attitude of mind is the important thing for displaying the airplane and not the pilot himself. He needs to have a basic skill, <coughs> excuse me, and he needs to have knowledge of aerodynamics. If you have a good pilot, you can teach him to fly historic airplanes quite easily. If you have a historic aircraft pilot, you can't teach him to be a good pilot unless he's one already. And what we do in the Shuttleworth Collection is take test pilots. That doesn't mean to say test pilots are the only ones who can fly the airplanes, but they have a proven skill. If we give them the test pilot, we then look at them. If they have the right attitude, and if they're keen, and if they come along and do what they need to do to get into the collection, we then allow them to fly the airplane. We then go on to a process when we train them of unteaching to get back into the older airplanes. I don't want to dwell on the pilot side of it because it's not the pilot side we need to talk about. It's the historic aircraft side. But that's the sort of person that we need, somebody with skill, knowledge, attitude, and we can then take that basic commodity and teach him or unteach him how to fly the historics. It's a Bucky Youngman, which was recently acquired by the collection, painted in uh, colours of an aircraft that was uh, stolen by, I think it was a couple of French POWs that escaped and managed to bring it back to the UK. It's not that type, but that was the colours that it was in. What I'm going to do this evening is look at three specific techniques 
that you have to teach, or rather three areas where you have to unteach. Um, we'll look at the single aircraft type in each one, but just to give you a, an idea, the types up there listed are the types that we have in the Shuttleworth collection under those headings. So I'm just going to pick one of those. And the first one we'll look at is the Avro Tutor and the uh, Hawker Tomtip is wing warping. The quote comes from my predecessor, John Lewis, uh, when he was teaching me how to fly the Blériot. And that's the aircraft that I'm going to look at. That's a Blériot 11. It's the earliest, the oldest flying airplane in the world. Second oldest is at Rhinebeck, another Blériot 11 with a later number than this one. It's got an Anzani V 23 horsepower motor on the front. And it's controlled in pitch by elevators to work, just on the edge of the tailplane there, in yaw with a rudder, but in roll by wing warping. If you take a look at the aircraft, it tends to fly in the attitude that it is on the ground. If you could imagine the air coming at the wings in this direction, they've got quite a lot of incidence. And if you've got quite a lot of incidence on a wing and you increase the incidence, what's going to happen? Any ideas? Sorry? Well, you will increase the lift, but you'll increase two other things as well. Sorry? You get lots of drag, and if you increase the lift to a certain point, or increase the instance to a certain point, you're going to stall the wing. And on something like the Blériot, because the wing is so, is so broad, broad cord, and you increase the instance on the outer part of the wing, you end up with significant drag at the higher instance, which causes the aircraft to yaw in the wrong direction. Because of the dihedral, it then rolls in the wrong direction. Significantly, it's almost at the stall. So as soon as you put the wing warping in, the wing will stall and drop. So the primary effect of right stick is left wing drop. <laughs> now, Blario's grandson attempted <coughs> excuse me, to fly a Blario across the channel in, um, oh, about 10 years ago, and crashed shortly after takeoff. And I saw the picture, I think, in Airplane Monthly, and the caption underneath said something of the form, a quote from Blériot's grandson. He said, I couldn't understand it. I put the stick to the left, and it kept turning right. Well, we can understand it, because that's what happens to ours. If you put the stick to the left, it'll always turn to the right, unless you're in straight flight with a reasonable speed on, in which case it might go to the left. <laughs> which is the interesting part about flying historic aeroplanes. Um, if we have a look at the cockpit of the aeroplane, um, being French, everything... Is anybody French in the audience? <laughs> it doesn't matter, because I, I spent a year in France and had a marvellous time. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I did learn out there, that if you're in doubt about anything, then make it backwards. So if you want to go driving, you're driving the opposite side of the road, but you reverse the priority as well. So the priority comes back one. Uh, NATO becomes OTAN, and so on and so forth. Um, courses are eaten in different orders, knives and forks on different sides, um, everything. It doesn't matter what it was, just assume it's backwards. And it's the same with, with uh, engine controls. Um, the engine is controlled by an advance and retard lever, and you pull it back to advance the timing, I increase the revs and push it forward to reduce it. So we're now working in reverse on the 
It's not a throttle control, but let's call it that, working in reverse on the throttle control. Um, it's a pilot control oil system. That's an oil tank. There's only one gauge, and that's the oil pressure gauge. Um, the pilot controls the oil pressure by pumping on the right to a certain figure. Uh, it can blow off at the top of the tank to reduce the pressure, and it can let oil into the engine at the bottom of the tank. There's no firewall, so the oil comes straight back at the pilot. You can see one of the cylinders there, so you can tell how much oil is going to the engine. But essentially, if it squeaks, it's not getting enough. And if you're getting soaked and it starts to cough a bit, then it's getting too much. <laughs> and you vary the two to get the maximum... Um, essentially to get maximum power. So you, the engine is controlled by the oil flow and by the advance and retard. Uh, it's got a conventional control column, which is this affair just here. Uh, that's the cloche, which is French for bell. Uh, all it is is a cover for a cruciform bell crank with wires coming off each end leading to the wing warping and to the pitch. Uh, rudder control on the ground. Uh, we'll have a look at Sopwith Putt later on, uh, which has an inverted level gauge. Uh, modern aircraft have a slip ball, and when you're controlling the yaw of the airplane, um, if the slip ball goes out to one side, you push the rudder in that direction to bring it back, which is how it's designed. If you try and do the same with a level in 1914-type airplane, you'll end up pushing the rudder in the wrong direction. But if you use the stick instead, so if the ball goes out to one side or the other and you use the stick to bring it back, it works in the natural sense, which is a good hint that, in fact, you don't fly on the stick, you don't fly on ailerons, you fly on the rudder. And we discovered this with the Blériot, uh, middle of the 1990s. Um, we flew it, it ground looped to the left. We flew it again, it ground looped to the right. We put it back in the shed, had a big think about it. Uh, we made the tailwheel steerable. We reduced the uh, castering on the nose wheel. And eventually we put a brake on the tailwheel, so when it ground looped, at least we could stop it. And it wasn't until the mid-90s that we discovered that if, in fact, you fly it on the rudder and use yaw to control the aeroplane, secondary effect of yaw is roll, and with the dihedral that you have, if we go back one, you can see the dihedral, um, controlling it with yaw will make it roll or turn in that direction. And if you read books about flying the older aeroplanes, you'll find that it says when you get into a steep turn, at large angles of bank, you use the elevator as a rudder to turn the aeroplane. And I often wondered what that meant. What it means is that to turn the aeroplane, you use the rudder as the prime control. If you put lots of bank on, obviously you use the elevator. But the rudder is the prime control. And it's exactly that with the Blériot. If you wish to turn the aeroplane, you use the rudder. If you want it to turn harder, you put the stick in the opposite direction. Easy. <laughs> That's what happens when you get it wrong. And uh, we've got a video of that that hopefully we'll see later. That's what happens when you get it right. It's quite simple. Any questions on the Blériot? <laughs> we can look at that in a little bit more detail later. Just like you to read that. That's a warning in a set of pilot's notes. Correction. It's a description of a characteristic in a set of pilot notes for what I describe as an exceptional aeroplane. Uh, some of it's exceptionally good, some of it's exceptionally bad. But it is definitely an exceptional aeroplane. I've never seen anything similar to that in any set of pilot's notes before or since, except perhaps the Hurricane. Uh, an early set of pilot's notes I read for the Hurricane said, quote, it is not recommended to let go of the control column in flight. 
It was only when I flew the airplane and discovered that it's grossly unstable in pitch that I discovered what those words actually meant. But this is the Western Lysander. There's two more pages, so a little bit more reading to do. Last two lines are the interesting ones for me. When the trim is, it needs to be set fully back for landing, and it must be set to the takeoff position for takeoff. We'll, we'll look at that in a moment. And all these appear in the handling section of the pilot's notes. There's a general view of the collections Lysander. Uh, it's done up in non-authentic colors, but uh, it was quite a significant mission that the aircraft went on. Um, and uh, the family are still extant, and in consultation with them, we put the aircraft in authentic colors for a mission, I think, in 1940. It's on 1943, November 43 or November 44. I can't remember which. Uh, but looking at the general configuration of the airplane, Looks quite stumpy. We'll look at that in a moment. From a pilot's point of view, it's got exceptional field of view. You can see very well over the nose, indeed. You can see very well to the side of the nose. The wing is level with the pilot's eyes, so you can see above it and below it. The leading edge is cut back so that it tapers back to the pilot's eyes, so the pilot can see very well to the front, particularly in the front quarter, but also to the rear, which is most important. One of the exceptional features, automatic slats and flaps and automatic slats on the outer part of the wing. The inner slats and the inner flaps move together. As incidence is pulled, the slats pull out, the flaps come down. As the aircraft slows down, the slats come out, the flaps come down together. If you accelerate, then they blow back in again. Uh, so you always have the ideal amount of slat and flap for the turn or the speed that you're flying at. And it's not until you get to aircraft like Eurofighter that that occurs in modern machines. It's an exceptional, quite an exceptional uh, characteristic of the airplane, particularly when you consider it was done in 1936 or in that, that, around that time. Quite a high-power engine. 860 horsepower Bristol Mercury. The Hurricane, Sea Hurricane Mark I, for example, with a Merlin III, has only 840 horsepower at sea level. The Lysander is about two-thirds the weight of a Hurricane. So it's a powerful machine. It can get off from a short strip, and it will cruise at about 150 to 170 miles an hour, which is quite fast for an aircraft of that era. Very rugged undercarriage, so it can operate from semi-prepared strips. The fuel tank is on the center of gravity, so it doesn't affect the handling as fuel is used. The tank underneath was for special operations to enable it to get into France and back again with agents on board. It's a remarkably clean airplane. looks a bit stubby, but that's what it looks like from the front. So the acceleration is good and the fuel consumption is good. So quite a remarkable machine. Bear that in mind. There's a picture from the front on the ground, and because you can see all of that from the ground, it means all the ground can be seen from the cockpit. It's a nice picture too. The interesting characteristics for me, and we come back to the trim side of it, this is a picture of the aircraft at takeoff. Takeoff is carried out by opening the throttle and holding the control column fully back. If you put the control column forward, the tail will come up, the slats will blow in, the flaps will come up, and you'll increase your takeoff run. So the 
most effective way of getting the aircraft airborne is to pull the stick fully back and open up the throttle to maintain a three-point attitude. And it climbs off the ground in a three-point attitude, and then you accelerate away. And if you look at the position of the tailplane, at takeoff, the leading edge of the tailplane is on that central white marker. The tailplane is fully movable between the fully down trim and fully up trim. And there's a wheel on the left-hand side of the cockpit. And I think, remind me, Keith, 25? Twenty. 20 bytes of the trim wheel to get from one to the other, and that takes quite a long time. Keith is one of our pilots. He's recently been flying the Lysander, so he's more current on it than I. That's the position at takeoff. The aircraft is in the three-point attitude, quite a lot of power coming from the engine, and the tailplane is set to about the half position. On landing, with the aircraft in exactly the same attitude, this is just after landing, the elevator is fully up, the tailplane is fully down, the engine's still turning, but not as fast. But the aircraft is trimmed to fly in that condition. So what's the difference between landing and takeoff? Fundamental. Power. At high power, the tailplane is energized, becomes a lot more effective, so you have to put it on that central position for takeoff. You have to have it in that position there to land. So if the engine quits on takeoff with full backstick, the only way you can control the airplane is put in about 10 bytes of elevator trim, which is the meaning of the statement at the beginning of the at the beginning of this section of the uh, of the talk, which makes it quite an interesting airplane. If you do a level stall, take the take it up to height, engine off put full back trim and full back stick, deceleration, you end up with full back stick at about 65 miles an hour. That is the speed to which we do not go below uh, when we're controlling the airplane. You can apparently get the airplane down to about 35, 40 miles an hour when it stalls. But when it, you have to, to, in order to do that, you have to use power, increase the power to energize the tailplane to enable you to get the downforce on the tailplane to bring the speed back. If you do that and the engine quits, you're only going one way, which is nose down. And when you stall, you're only going one way, which is down. But at the same time, you're losing quite significant lift off the wings, and it's not going to come off together, so you're almost certain to get a wing drop, which is, again, the reason for the other warning. We've never stalled the aircraft at Shuttleworth. We don't intend to. But it does mean you can get the speed right back if you want to get into a short strip. It also means you can get the speed right back on takeoff once you're airborne and get the nose up to get out of a short strip. But again, if the engine quits and the nose high attitude and you're relying on the power to hold the airplane, then you're in the, uh, in the proverbial. Add that to the engine handling characteristics. It's a Bristol Mercury, very lightweight engine, very efficient engine, quite a powerful engine, 860 horsepower at sea level. Got three fundamental characteristics. One is a vicious, absolutely vicious acceleration jet. So if you accelerate the engine too quickly then it'll quit because you'll flood it, which is the unfortunate accident that happened to the Blenheim some years ago. If you put negative G on the engine, the engine will stop. When you take the negative G off, you'll, from a lean cut, you'll go to a rich cut, and the rich cut will take about 30 seconds to clear. So if you're displaying the airplane, if you put negative G on it, then you won't recover. You'll have to force land. Third thing, highly prone to carb ice. 
the aircraft has a carburetor heat gauge in the cockpit. And if, it's, if a wartime airplane has a gauge put in the cockpit, then you know it's put in for some reason. They don't put stuff in that you don't need. It's got a carburetor heat temperature gauge. And it's imperative that you fly the airplane on the gauge using carb heat as required to maintain positive evening jet. Maintaining carb heat as required to keep it to keep the temperature positive. The problem is the acceleration jet. Because the aircraft is flying very stably, as you can see with quite a lot of elevator and with the flaps, quite a lot of instance on the wing, then you're well at the backside of the drag curve when you're on the approach, which means as the aircraft slows down, it'll continue to slow down. As you speed up, it'll continue to speed up, which means you have to work quite hard on the throttle. But if you work too on the hard on the throttle, then the engine will cut. Now, we tie that up to one of the fundamental characteristics of the airplane. We said it got automatic flaps and slats. If you're running in on an approach and you get slightly high, the natural thing for a pilot to do is drop the nose. Immediately you drop the nose to reduce the height of the airplane, the slats will blow in and the flaps will blow in. The aircraft will gain 10 or 20 miles an hour. When you've descended the 50 feet that you want to lose and you pull the nose back up to control the airplane, it will zoom to about 100 feet. So the action of dropping the nose to lose height on the approach gives you a net gain of about 50 foot. <laughs> so the way to control the airplane, if you're too high, is to pull the stick back. It's to increase the incidence, increase the flap and slat, increase the drag, bring the airplane down onto the correct glide path, then lower the nose to maintain it. It's different, not difficult. Tie that up with the engine, and as you raise the nose to reduce the speed, more drag, more power. Don't put it in too quickly because the engine will quit. How they managed to get this machine into the strips in France safely, I will never know. However, Hugh Verity, uh, boss of the squadron, did a very nice book. They flew by night, I think it was called. Uh, still available. Uh, describes his time on the Lysander. He was told he was going to take over the squadron. Uh, he grabbed an airplane, he went out and flew it, and he said it took him about 35 hours before he was happy enough to fly the airplane into anywhere, out of anywhere, and to be able to take it to France. And I can well believe that for an experienced pilot, that it would take that amount of time. But once you have the time on the airplane, once you've taken the characteristics in hand, then it becomes a very simple airplane to fly. Just one note on the reducing speed. If you reduce speed on final approach in a modern airplane, very dangerous. Model airplanes approach at about 1.2, 1.3 times stall speed. If you reduce the speed, you get close to the stall. You could stall with the obvious uh, result. In this aircraft, we approach at about 75 to 80 miles an hour. Correction, about 80 to 85 miles an hour. The stall speed is around 35 to 40. So we're approaching at over twice stall speed. So it's quite safe to reduce the speed of the airplane in respect of the stall. And in fact, it's the only way you can get the thing to come down onto the glide path. There's another photograph of the aircraft landing, and you can see the aircraft is in the air with the nose of the elevator right on the bottom stop, flaps and slats fully out. Any questions on the Lysander? Outboard slats. Outboard slats. Um, we have them now. When we uh, took over the airplane, the castings were missing on the airplane. Uh, this is quite an old photograph, about six or seven years ago. 
Um, we got the castings put in for the outboard slats about four years back, and they're now operational. And it doesn't actually make that much difference to the handling characteristics, I have to say. I want to ask you, did the pilot's notes at the time cover all these factors? Um, they didn't tell you how to go up and down on the approach, but they did describe the characteristics of the airplane. Um, that comes straight from the pilot's notes. So the answer is partially yes. They, they don't go into the nitty-gritty of going up and down on the approach, but they do tell you a summary of the problems that you can get with the airplane, that one and that one, and the initial, that one there as well. It's a straight quote from the pilot's notes. And is your approach speed the approach speed they used during the war to get in the short field? That I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't answer that because I don't know. Uh, it is a reasonable approach speed, but if you want to get into a very short strip, you're going to have to go a lot slower, which you can do safely, provided your engine keeps going. So the probable answer is no, but the true answer is I don't know, I'm afraid. Was it difficult across the uh, no more difficult than any other aeroplane. It's very, it's quite a tall aeroplane. Uh, it's a stalky undercarriage. There's a lot of weight in here with a fuel tank and a lot of weight up there with the wings. So it does tend to roll a bit. But uh, the crosswind handling is quite reasonable. The elevator effectiveness is reasonable. It's not, not high for an aircraft of that era. Uh, but the elevator effector is reasonable. The rudder effectiveness is reasonable. And you can land it one wing down in a crosswind without too much problem. 10 knots on tarmac, about 15 knots on grass is a reasonable limit to operate to. I can see Keith nodding, so he's, he's in agreement with that. I rely very much on, a lot on the pilots within the collection because most of us have only got three or four hours on this type of machine. And the people that are flying them currently are normally the experts on, on the operation, but about 10 to 15 knots. We'll go on to the third area that I want to look at, and this will take a little bit longer than the other two. I've, I'm going to give a talk next week on, uh, for the Historic Aircraft Association at uh, the Royal Air Force Museum. And uh, they said, would you talk? And I said, yeah, I'd be delighted. They said, what would you like to talk on? I said, flying rotary engines. And they published it as flying a World War I rotary. And I thought, well, why did they change it? Because I'm going to talk about Blackburn 1912. It was two years before World War I. And I suddenly realized, of course, if you say to a modern pilot, rotary engine, they think of the Wankel rotary. There's a Sopworth pup. That's what she looks like with her clothes on. Just as a matter of interest, there's no such thing as a dumb question, and there's no such thing as a dumb answer. Is everybody aware of what a rotary engine is in the context that I'm talking about? Stick your hand up. Just, you know, one of those if, you, if you're not. Okay, it'll come clear if you're not, so don't worry. It's got a rotary engine on the front, and because the whole engine is rotating, the crankshaft attached to the airframe, the only way you can get fuel into it is from the back. So the air intake sits on the side of the fuselage there, one either side, and it's a tube that meets in the middle at the carburetor. If we go on to the next slide, this is what the Sopworth pup looks like at the moment. I took this picture last Sunday, Saturday, last weekend at Old Warden. We're stripping it down and renovating it for next season. Uh, a nicely castor oil encrusted gnome correction, Lerone 80 horsepower motor. You can see the air intake at the back there. You can see the 
In fact, that's the bracket that goes across. That's where the block tube carburetor is that mixes up the fuel to get it in a hollow crankshaft into the crankcase of the engine. It then comes up these tubes here into the valves at the top, gets burnt, and comes out the valve on the other side. All very simple in principle. In practice, fascinating. That's the salt with pump petrol system. Block tube carburetor is just a slide across a tube. There's no venturi. We'll have a look at that in a little bit more detail in a minute. But essentially, it's just a box that the fuel goes in. So there's no, because there's no venturi, there's no suction, so the fuel has to get there under pressure. Aircraft such as the Blackburn 1912, the pressure comes from gravity. Um, Sop with Camel and Bristol monoplane, there's a gravity tank that used an emergency. On the Avro 504, there's a gravity tank that used an emergency. But on all of them, except for the Blackburn 1912, there's a pressure tank that you pressurize from the cockpit using a hand pump or from a Rotherham propeller pump. That pressurizes the tank through a relief valve, and the air pressure gauge in the cockpit is one of the prime gauges. The fuel comes from the main tank through a shut-off cock to a fuel control or needle valve or fuel valve or tampier filter tap or petrol tap or petrol lever. Any word like that describes that particular gadget there. That controls the amount of fuel that goes into the block tube and the block tube is referred to as the block tube, the fuel air lever, or the power lever, plus one or two other things besides. And what we're going to look at is the relationship between the two to enable the engine to run. That's the Sopwith Pup cockpit. There's the level gauge that I was talking about earlier, which is an inverted slip ball, in effect. But it's not a ball, it's a bubble. And it's the bubble that you fly by, and you fly by using the aileron, control, not the rudder control. Fundamental difference. There's the pressure pump for pumping up the fuel tank air pressure. Tank pressure gauge is just here. There's the fuel on-off cock. That's um, a pulsator, which as the oil pump, as the, the oil pump pumps oil, for want of a better expression, um, the pressure comes back into that little inverted tube and puts the meniscus up and down in sympathy with the revs of the engine. So, quote, if you lose your rev counter just here, you can work out the engine revs by timing the pulsations and looking on a chart. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit like they, they use that to make sure the oil's still flowing. There is absolutely no doubt in a rotary engine that oil is flowing. <laughs> There's certainly no doubt the following morning either, but there we go. <laughs> The uh, throttle quadrant, as we would call it in the model world, power levers in the um, rotary world, look like that. The lever just here is the tampier filter tap, the petrol lever, the fuel lever. That lever up there controls the block tube. There's the, the rods going into the various parts in the engine. It runs in a quadrant that's numbered 0 to 10. Unfortunately, the numbers don't stand out, but it's cross-hatching across it, and 0 up here, 10 up there. That's the blow-off valve, Jones valve as it's called, which controls the total air pressure. And when the pressure gets above 2.5 PSI, then the valve blows off. Don't need to concern ourselves with that, unless air pressure is falling, in which case you might have to hold the pin on the top to stop it coming out which happened to John Lewis, my predecessor, some years ago. Another nice view of the pup. 
It's interesting, in uh, 1914, the rotary engine has got quite a significant gyroscopic effect to it. So when you raise the tail, you get a significant swing. And when you lower the tail, you get a significant swing. So much so that if you wheel this aircraft on, the gyroscopic precession will create a swing that is greater than the power of the rudder. So if you wheel it on, on landing, you will ground loop. There is absolutely no question. And because you will ground loop, they put hoops under the wings <laughs> so you don't damage the airplane. Quite sensible, really. Um, that's a block tube carburetor. That's the pipe that goes across the airplane, which brings the air in. The engine goes forward. Uh, the pipe is sitting behind here. That hole there leads to the engine, which is this side, in the same way that, that holes lead the engine. That's the block tube carb. That's the lever that goes to the cockpit. And all it is is a rectangular slide that moves across. That's where the fuel comes in, and there's a needle valve on the end of the slide. So as we move the big lever forwards and backwards, we move that slide forwards and backwards. The needle valve increases and reduces the fuel flow to a certain extent, but we control the fuel flow with the small lever. So moving that one up and down will control the amount of fuel air that gets to the engine. Moving that one forwards and backwards will control the amount of fuel that gets to the fuel valve. It's starting to get complicated. That's a test pilot diagram explaining what actually happens. We can get the engine to run in there, we can't get it to run anywhere else. This is a petrol lever going up and down, the small one. This is a big lever going left and right. An infinite number of positions for each lever, but the engine will only run in that area there. Rotary engines are often described as running at full power or nothing. The original engines, all they had was a fuel lever. So you'd start the engine up, put the fuel in, adjust the fuel to get smooth running, and by moving the fuel lever backwards and forwards a little bit, you could probably modulate it between about 95% and 100% thrust. In order to fly formation, they needed to modulate the engines, so the block tube carburetor was brought into being. And that allowed a thrust modulation of between, say, about 50-60% at low thrust and about 100% at high thrust. 50-60% to 60 is still too high to descend, and it's certainly too high to taxi. So you need some other way of controlling the engine, and they do that on an ignition switch, which they put on the control column, so you can cut the ignition of the engine by hitting the blip switch, as it's called. Uh, it's not an ideal way to control the engine, because every time you blip it, you shock load it, and that's going to wear it out in time. Also, if you do a prolonged descent from altitude by cutting the engine on the blip switch, then the fuel is still flowing, castor oil is still flowing too, that flows anyway, the fuel is still flowing, and you'll end up oiling up your plugs with fuel and castor oil, so that when you release the blip switch, you probably won't get an engine back. So the best way of modulating the thrust below 60-odd percent is to turn the fuel off and shut the engine down, and then put the fuel back in again when you require the engine. If you do that, you'll get the engine within about five seconds of bringing the fuel back on, provided you don't do it too quickly. If you do it too quickly, you'll get a rich cut. We'll talk about that in a minute. When we run the aircraft... We introduce fuel in the cylinder heads. The ground crew does that. They spin the prop a few times to distribute the fuel mixture. You'll then say set, which means setting the levers, and contact. The switches go on. 
sent the lever normally, the block tube, to about 30%, and the fuel lever off. So we've got a block tube just here. They'll spin the engine, and it should start, and it fires up with a crackle. When the fuel is burned off, the engine will die. As the engine dies, you feed in the fuel lever to about the 30% position, and the engine should run. Less than 30%, it'll be too lean. More than 30%, it'll be too rich, and it'll stop. If you get it too rich, you've got too much fuel in the engine, and you won't clear it on the ground. The process has to start again. But by judicious movement of the fuel lever, within a few seconds, you should have the engine running at around 800 RPM. If you run for too long, two and a half minutes in the summer, three minutes in the winter, you'll overheat the engine. You can't heat up the oil because it's total loss. So you have to accept the oil as it is. But normally you warm up the engine, temperature stabilize it for about 20 or 30 seconds, then test full power. If you move the fuel lever up, you'll go rich. So you move the block tube up to a position there. The engine will cut because it's not getting enough fuel. You then introduce the fuel lever forward to get smooth running. And you should get around 1,000 to 1,100 RPM, again, by judicious use of the levers. You'll notice that the position of the fuel lever is quite broad, probably about 30 to 35% at the high RPM, probably about 30 to 32% at the low RPM. So it's critical at low RPM, not so critical at high RPM. And 30 to 35% is about a quarter of an inch on the quadrant. So it is quite tight. The settings are found for the day, normally around 70% for the block tube and around 35% for the fuel lever. Minimum time at high power, 20, 30 seconds. The engine is then throttled back. The fuel lever is, is reduced. The block tube is reduced. The fuel is put back in again. And the engine is now idling at 800 RPM or thereabouts. The chocks are waved away. If you do nothing, the aircraft will leap forward and take out the ground crew. You won't get another start off them that day. So you need to blip to cut the engine to stop it moving forward. The chocks will move, the aircraft will bounce forward a little bit. You release the blip switch, hopefully the engine is still running. Then smoothly open the block tube to the position that you thought of earlier. Smoothly bring the fuel lever in until the engine's running and you're accelerating down the runway. If you do nothing else, the engine will stop at rotate. Because as the aircraft accelerates and the engine unloads, the RPM increases, centrifugal force increases, the mixture enriches, and you get a rich cut. So as you're accelerating down the runway, it's imperative that the fuel lever is brought back very slightly to maintain smooth running. As the aircraft climbs and the air gets thinner, again, you have to lean the mixture, otherwise the engine will stop. As you descend, the mixture should be enriched, and as you slow down, the mixture should be enriched. In practice, it's quite simple. Sounds difficult. It's different, as I said earlier. It's a bit like trying to describe to somebody how to ride a bike if they've never seen one. It's dead easy when you can do it. It's impossible when you can't. And it's exactly the same with the rotary engine. When you have the skill, and it's very easy to obtain the skill, if it wasn't easy, the average teenager wouldn't have taken the up with pup to walk. It's very easy to obtain the skill. Once you have the skill, it's a relatively straightforward process. To come down, you need to shut the engine down. There's a rather quaint bit in the pilot's notes, um, pilot's notes, in the handling notes for the engine that says, in order to descend, the fuel lever should be shut off. The pilot should then 
200 feet above his level of flight, set the levers to the position noted in the climb on the way up, which is impossible. In practice, as the descent is made, the block tube lever is set at about 70%, and as the altitude is reached that you're required to be, you bring in the fuel lever very slowly until the engine picks up. In order to descend into the circuit, you bring the aircraft into position where you can force land it, shut the engine down on the fuel, fly a force landing pattern to the middle of the airfield. In the latter stages of the approach, very gently bring the fuel lever back in again. If the engine quits and it doesn't work, that's fine. All you need to do is force land the airplane. If the engine does pick up, kill it immediately on the blip switch. You won't be shock loading because the engine is still at low RPM. A landing can be carried out, and you should maybe, possibly, have an engine available by releasing the blitz, which, should you need it, control the ground loop that you're going to get into because you try to wheel it on instead of three-point it. <laughs> it's then important to bring both levers back very quickly because the engine is set for full power. So the fuel lever needs to be brought back, the block tube brought back, the fuel lever brought back again to position where the engine is running. And the engine is then allowed to idle, if you like, around 700 RPM, maybe blipping to stop taxing too fast, to temperature stabilise for about 20 or 30 seconds, and it's then shut down on the fuel lever. It's an average flight in a rotary. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> Delightful. There's uh, several rotary pad machines in the uh, in the collection. That's the sort of the triplane. Uh, nice story on this one. It's uh, got a Clerget 130 horsepower. There's the the classic um, intake on the side and the Rotherham propeller pump on the strut at the back to give you fuel pressure. Uh, this is a replica airplane built by Northern Airplane Workshops to original spec with original drawings. Everything in it is exactly as it should be for 1918. Um, Tom Sopworth saw it before he died, got in touch or got into bed, if you like, with Northern Airplane Workshops and said he was quite happy to extend the 1918 production line to accommodate this airplane. So we call it a late model triplane, <laughs> which I think it deserves. It's, it's an outstanding bit of uh, modern engineering. Will these engines fire and run I've never known one to. Uh, with the, uh, I understand the blip switch, you're uh, stopping the uh, ignition. Yeah. So the fuel is still flowing. Yes. And it's expelled from the engine. Do you ever get a sort of flashback or anything? I don't know of one. It must be possible. <laughs> What's the difference between the, um, between the puff and the duck? Because the duck has two seats. Um, were there any differences apart from that to the airframe? Um, yes, there was. This, um, this aircraft started life as a pup on the production line. Halfway through its build, it was converted to a dove because the end of the war intervened. So it came off the, it came, although it's a genuine airplane, it came off the production line uh, after the end of the war. Um, the original or the initial doves, as far as I'm aware, had the same configuration of the pup, which is a straight wing, and they had two cockpits. Shuttleworth bought the airplane as a dove in 1934, I think, and converted it back to single seat to a pup. But it's not the same as a stock pub. There are several differences around the cockpit area with the cockpit instruments and one or two other things. Uh, the production Dove, the aircraft that were built as a Dove, had two seats and swept back wings. Because if you put two people in this airplane, you end up with a CG too far back. Turning to the uh, triplane, 
Yeah, the, the aircraft is, is designed uh, to operate up around 15,000 feet. So there's far too much power at low altitude. Uh, in flight test, starboard wing vibrates as speed is increased. And around 130 miles an hour, the amplitude at the trailing edge is about plus or minus an inch. And none of us dare take it any further. So we use 130 miles an hour as the never exceed of the airplane. It's got a 130 horsepower engine in a Sopwith Pup fuselage with three wings instead of two. The Sopwith Pup has 80 horsepower. In practice, a rotary is bigger, produces more power than a stationary engine, so you've got effectively nearly twice the power in this machine than a Pup for a roughly similar amount of drag. So you can exceed the never exceed in level flight with the engine at minimum RPM. So we tend to fly it on a lean cut all the time, and, uh, which is why it doesn't sound very nice when it displays. There's a question at the front. Yes, please. Bearing in mind all the complications of having that heavy machinery spinning around, what are the advantages of a rotary engine over a conventional radial? Um, the conventional radials were difficult to call, so most of them were water-cooled. In fact, most of them were V-engines, and they had water-cooling. The stationary engines were water-cooled. Uh, in order to get an air-cooled engine efficiently cooled, they had to rotate it, as this one is. Um, the rotating engine was lighter than the, a lot lighter than the um, water-cooled variants. They weren't as complicated as the water-cooled engines, and they had a much higher power-weight ratio because of the light weight. But they're a lot more critical on clearances, a uh, lot more maintenance. I think the time between overhauls is something like 35 to 50 hours. I don't know what the equivalent is for stationary, but it's pretty low, low time for the rotary engine. But it's essentially lightweight and low power weight. So the fighters <coughs> tended to have rotaries. The bombers tended to have stationaries, except for the Bristol Fighter and SE-5A, both of which are quite heavy airplanes. Okay, what I'd like to do now, we're coming up to time, is have a look at a couple of videos. Um... This should show a start-up and a short display of the Blackburn 1912. It was at the Shuttleworth pageant on the 3rd of December this year. And it should show the start if I've got... If we, I gave him five videos, and uh, hopefully we've got the right ones. Hopefully they're still... Uh, it'll show a start-up sequence and a flight to the Blackburn, which is a rotary-powered aeroplane. See each cylinder being charged in turn. It'll also give you some idea of the time that it takes from startup to getting airborne, which should be around one and a half to two and a half minutes. Somebody on the back there to hold the tail down to stop it nosing over. Contact! Good! Contact! Oh! Oh! 
So there's an initial warm-up period of about 30 to 40 seconds. You notice the engine died initially. You have to let it die because if you feed the fuel in too quickly, it'll go rich. So you must let the prime burn off before you feed in the, the, uh, the normal fuel, the normal running fuel. The levers are assayed to get it idling properly. The wind-up signal is given to move up to the high power. with the flip switch. The aircraft's moved forward a little bit. The levers are set to high power and we're off. This is the oldest flying British airplane, the Blackburn 1912. Yes, sir. Is that turning the glamorous with the Flurio? On that, well, not, no it's not. It, it's one of the few aircraft, in, it's the only aircraft in the collection that is stable around all three axes. Um, because of the washout on the wings, I don't know if you noticed that the wings were quite significantly twisted. Um, you can fly it as a conventional airplane and use the roll control for ailerons. The only problem with the machine is that it's got the Blackburn patented control system, which is a... Um, in fact, can we hold the video just a sec and go back to the uh, laptop, please? That's the Blackburn cockpit, and it's got a Blackburn painted control system, which goes up and down, rotating on that bar there for pitch. Uh, it rotates, rolling that pulley there for wing warping, and it used to go left and right for rudder. But they've now locked the rudder, and they've got a rudder, conventional rudder control in the airplane. Uh, the problem occurs that in the roundout, the control column is here. The hinge is there. And if you try and pull it and push it, nothing happens. You have to force it down. So shortly after I started flying the airplane, I got them to modify the control system. So when it flies, it flies with it up there rather than out here. So you can then pull and push for pitch as opposed to nothing, <laughs> or opposed to up-down. But yes, it flies conventionally. You can turn very flat. Yeah, it's uh, on all of these aircraft there. They're not, although they are, this one is stable in roll, as bank comes on, they go unstable. And the wing warpers are notoriously low in roll power. And as the instability increases and the roll power reduces, and when you're warping a wing, you have to warp it against the uh, structure, against the stiffness of the wing. If the wing is easy to warp, it'll go into flutter. So it has to be stiff. So you've got quite high forces tied up with low roll power, turned up with increasing stability, that it becomes physically impossible to get more than about five degrees of bank on. <laughs> there we go. You talked about the hand handling notes in the Westland. Yes. Um, I was just thinking, ATA pilots in the war, they had that nice flip over, one page, one aircraft. Mm. Uh, when you, we were talking about uh, push this, do that, and et cetera, uh, what, uh, how did the ATA handle it? And how brief are the ATA notes for, for a Lysander? It's an interesting question. I've got a set of ATA notes um, at home, which had I known I was going to get the question, I'd have brought with me and we could have had a look. Uh, I don't know what it says in there, but I will have a look now you said, because it'd be interesting to find out what is in fact in it. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't be more specific as an answer. But Some of them were so brief. 
Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were one pages. There, yeah. There's a book on handling, which gives advice on handling twins, singles, tailwheels, conventional undercarriages, and, and uh, engines. And there's a section in the handling notes, the ATA pilot's notes, um, on handling the various the American engines and the British engines. But each aircraft is two sides of about A6 paper at the outside. Some of them are only half a page, but the maximum is only two pages. So I'll have a look and see what's there. Yes, somebody over there? A lady again. Um, well, reading about um, flying aircraft in the um, early 1900s, you do constantly hear about people falling out of aircraft at air shows. What, what restraining devices do you have to um, depend on when you're flying old aircraft? Um, they're all standard modern specification harnesses. We've had to change all our Sutton harnesses re recently in the collection because they fail to come up to... Uh, modern standard. So um, in the harnesses that you can see, we've got modern Sutton type harnesses in. Um, on the harnesses that you can't see, the Bristol monoplane, for example, that has a standard three point, uh, four point modern Irving type harness. One on the front row here. How does the slat and flap system on the Lysander work? Cool. Fred? When, as you increase the incidence, the center of pressure on that wing moves forward and the suction pulls the slat open and automatically levers the flat. It does it progressively. Um, and they're coupled across so that it's all symmetrical. The open slat is the, it, effectively the same as opened by the aerodynamic forces. As the center of pressure moves forward, the, the slat opens to uh, restore your airflow. It's rem a remarkable piece of engineering. And it works beautifully in flight, doesn't it, Keith? The the only thing you have to you have to understand the characteristic for the landing approach, which is the only interesting bit. But as a from an aerodynamic point of view, it's marvellous. You never forget your flaps. <laughs> you never forget to bring them in, and you never forget to put them out. <laughs> uh, you said it uh, wasn't um, difficult, but I wondered which was the most difficult uh, aircraft that you've flown in your experience. And secondly, do you think that um, the, the ability to fly these uh, machines, which depend very much on technique, is, is in danger of dying out? Um, second question first. Uh, yes, it is, which is part of the reason why I give lectures such as this one. Um, Historic Aircraft Association was formed um, early 80s uh, as, a, as a group that could share the skill of flying this type of machine. Uh, the first few symposiums gave ideas on, on various things uh, in that, that line, um, which is why we're trying to get back to it in the HAA. And next week, I'll be talking, giving a whole lecture on rotary engines as opposed to just part of a lecture to try and keep that skill alive because there's not many people in the country at the moment that are current on rotaries. We keep about four people at the collection. They've got a rotary at uh, Yeovilton and I think they've got one at Middle Wallop but I don't think either have flown for some time. So yeah, they're, they're rare skills. They are dying out. Uh, anybody can come along to the shuttle of the collection and ask us and we're quite free with the knowledge. 
Um, a lot of people don't, and I'm not sure why. There's a Sopwith pup coming up for test uh, in the PFA. And I'm very surprised that nobody's asked us what the characteristics of the pup are. And I'm going to be delighted to tell them if you wheel it on, it's going to ground loop. Because I bet they do. <laughs> if they've not flown on before. Um, answer the first question. Uh, none of them are difficult, but the greatest challenge that I've had in the collection uh, was flying the Sea Hurricane on its first flight. Um, that's the one that's on the on the board at the moment. Um, due to a for want of a better word, a cock-up with the paperwork, we got the CG wrong. Uh, the centre of gravity... If I, if I can get to the other... Sure. Centre of gravity on the, uh, on the schedule said that it should be 57 to 60 inches after datum. And the datum is the starter... Um, six inches behind a, a, a bracket here, which is the starter cog for the motor. And 57 inches back is around there. Um, the aircraft was ballasted to 59.4 inches uh, because it's got a hook under here and they put a hydraulic system in so the hook could be raised and lowered in flight. The original hook, you pull a string and it flops down and it stays down. The CA wouldn't let us do that. So in order to fly by with the hook down, they put a hydraulic system in to raise and lower the hook. Civil Aviation Authority wouldn't let us rebuild the tailplane with the original spars. We had to put heavier spars in. So there's an extra £10 of tailplane spar and an extra £7 of fin spar. Uh, when we weighed it, the CG came out within the limit, 57 to 60 inches, and it was 59.4. Easy. Um, I'd never flown a Hurricane before, but the... Um, it was a stable airplane, stable gun platform, so on and so forth. Uh, I'd never flown a Merlin 3 before, but Merlins are 1,000 horsepower engines, and I wasn't overly worried. Uh, I accelerated down the runway, got airborne, and the aircraft pitched up violently. Um, I eased the stick forward, and it pitched down violently. Uh, we went through about three or four oscillations. I managed to stabilize the pitching, raised the gear, it stuck halfway up, blanked the radiator, the temperature started to go off the clock, <laughs> and I looked down, and uh, the speed was only about 75 knots. Uh, the aircraft stalls at about 65, should climb at about, well, the, the flap limit's 105, gear limit's 105. Uh, my initial thoughts were to just turn back and crash land back on the airfield at Duxford. Um, but by throttling back slightly I contained the temperature rise and the reason for that was that the this aircraft was originally called by glycol which is inflammable uh, it's a non-pressurized system um, because glycol is flammable it was thought that they ought to give it a 70-30 glycol mix which reduces the cooling power but they didn't pressurize the system so we ended up with not enough radiator, in effect, so the engine was overheating. Um, I wasn't getting enough power because it's a heavy airplane and it's only 840 horsepower at sea level. It's a 1,000 horsepower engine, but only at the full throttle height of 11,600 feet. There's Rolls-Royce inventiveness in their operating instructions coming out. And I can say that because I used to be Rolls-Royce chief test pilot. <laughs> um, so I put all that together and it wasn't a happy state of affairs.
Um, what, in fact, we'd done, the, the power was due to the engine characteristic, and there's nothing we could do about that. Uh, the cooling was due to the glycol mix and the radiator. Uh, we eventually fixed that with a slight pressurization. Uh, the center of gravity was more fundamental. Uh, it had been ballasted to the Hurricane 2, which has got a four inches more supercharger. So the datum is four inches aft on this airplane if you put a supercharger at the back of the engine, which meant I was three and a half inches behind the aft CG, and the CG spread was only three inches. So that was the most challenging flight <laughs> of my career. <laughs> <laughs> um, within a short time I'd learned how to fly it. it took about five minutes and I then discovered you can fly an unstable airplane and you think into turns you just put the bank on and off she goes it's great and when you get used to it it becomes a highly manoeuvrable airplane um, <laughs> it's hard work but it's possible we move the CG back into the middle um, it's now got a fiberglass hook we're looking for a lighter tailplane. Uh, we're going to put the Spitfire prop on it, which is heavier. We've put all the armour plate back at the front, taken all the armour plate out at the back, and so on and so forth. And the CG is now mid-range. It's still unstable in pitch. But then we found a set of Mark I Hurricane Pilots notes, and it said right in the middle, quote, it is not recommended to let go of the control column in flight. <laughs> <laughs> and I now know what that means. <laughs> Gentlemen down there, just on the, uh, at the back. Desmond Penrose. Hello, Des. <laughs> you won't thank me for this. I'm sure I won't, but there we go. Fire away. <laughs> it's been my privilege to have been associated with the Shuttleworth Collection for over 40 oh, yeah. years. And I welcome the opportunity to acknowledge publicly the good Andy Sefton has done to the job of chief pilot. He has organized flight training. All aircraft have now dedicated Shuttleworth notes, continuity training, and annual training, and also a training week, and still manages to keep the aircraft hours low. Flight displays are better organized, with safety being paramount. Briefings, pre-display, and then hot and cold after the display are now routine. In short, he has completely reorganized for the better flying at Old Warden, and I salute him. Thank you. Thank you, Desmond. You're very kind. I will say, though, that Shuttleworth is a team, and it's a very strong team, and if the team didn't work, then it wouldn't work. But thank you anyway. One over. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just a question about the longevity of some of these aircraft. Of the three aircraft that you've spoken about in detail, um, have you any uh, feeling about how long more they can continue to fly. Um, and uh, an extension of that question, 
Um, is there any possibility that uh, health and safety legislation, both for the pilots and the public, will also tend to limit this in the future? It's a very interesting question. Um, in respect to the longevity, I don't know. Um, how long can you keep flying a piece of wood? Is the basic answer, or indeed, how long can you fly a piece of metal? I haven't got a clue. Um, the Blario is certainly the old, oldest flying airplane in the world, uh, although significant part of the wood in it isn't, um, because it crashed in the 70s and a lot of it was replaced. Um, the fabric is replaced too. The metal fittings, most are original. Uh, the Lysander had a significant rebuild in the 70s, so probably only 50% of that is original. Uh, the Sopwith Pup fabric is changed, but most of the woodwork is original. That's not been changed. And the metalwork's original. How long it'll last, I haven't got a clue. Um, health and safety-wise, again, I can't answer that because I can't say how the health and safety regs will go in the future. What can be said, though, is that the Civil Aviation Authority are very supportive of, and I never thought I'd ever say that in public, they're very supportive <laughs> of old airplanes. Uh, we've had a phenomenal amount of help, really, really phenomenal amount of help from the engineering section. A chap called Ian Higgins has been absolutely superb. Uh, and also from the flight ops section, uh, Paul Mackay, the test pilot, has been outstanding. Local inspectors have been very good as well to keep us in the air. We're allowed to operate the airplanes to original specification. And provided they are up to that original spec, we can operate them to the original limits. Um, obviously, most of them, we, there's no way we'd certify it today. Uh, the Bristol monoplane has, was built to original limits. The CA looked at it, and before they give us a permit to fly, they insist on 72 changes uh, to bring it up to a reasonable modern standard. But it's still built to original spec, and none of the changes have affected the look of the airplane the way it flies, or um, its authenticity, if you like. So I would hope that, no, health and safety isn't going to affect it. Uh, currently, it doesn't. Um, the CA take a realistic attitude. The display regulations and the way the aircraft are flown are flown in such a way that they're sympathetic to the airplane, um, to the longevity of the airplane, and to maintaining the airplane. The Blaria, we don't circuit. All we do is hop it so that people can see it in the air and hear it in the air. And by the way we operate it, hopefully it will last for as long as re is required. It's a long way of saying, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Is that an acceptable <laughs> answer? <laughs> That's a Thank good you. answer, sir. What constraints you've got on these? We use common sense. And it's left very much up to the pilots. If the pilots um, believe the weather conditions are fit to fly, then the aircraft fly. Um, the engineer won't push out the Edwardians when it's raining and several of the other more delicate types. Um, we'll fly Spitfire and Hurricane in the rain if we have to. We'll do Spitfire and Hurricane in the wind. We'll do Bristol monoplane in a wind, but we won't do the 504 or the PUP because they're quite difficult to control. Um, we won't fly the Magister in hard, hard edge buffet because it's original glue. Uh, but we'll fly, I don't know, the Tiger Moths and the Gypsy Moths, 
for example. So it depends very much on the type, the pilot, and the feeling of the day. If it's raining, the old stuff doesn't come out. So you won't buy them in the wind you eat With the Edwardians, if the tops of the trees are moving, we don't fly. Uh, the, the rule of thumb on the Edwardians, if you can't take off on land on any runway, then it's too windy to fly. Um, and if you can, then it's fine. The problem is that there's very low control power. Um, with a gusty wind, they're, they're very lightweight, low gust response. Um, if you hit any bouncy air, then it'll move the airplane in flight. You haven't got control power to bring it back, which is the problem. So if it's bouncy air, then we don't fly them. You can fly in flat air up to 10 knots of wind. Uh, you can't fly in bouncy air or 2 knots, for example. So the Ed Warners normally come out at the end of the show. We have evening shows so that we can fly them at sunset where the air is flat, uh, and we've tested the air by flying other types over the day. Common sense. Thank you. Kit Mitchell had a question. Um, we're not afraid to say no. Uh, we have people waiting all day and then decide not to fly. It's very frustrating, but most people accept that. Yes. Really, following from that, I mean, it's wonderful to see the old aeroplanes flying, see and hear them but they are irreplaceable. And where do you feel the balance comes between demonstrating, displaying an aeroplane and saying this is just too precious to fly and risk? Um, again, another interesting question. I think it depends very much on the organization. Uh, I am for flying the aeroplanes. Um, I have no problem with aeroplanes being put in museums and sitting there for the rest of the time, provided they're looked after. And I have no problem with flying them, provided they're looked after. Um, with an outfit like the Shuttleworth Collection, it gets its income from people coming through the door and watching them fly. That income has bought us five airplanes recently, which has put five historic... Air we've, we've got the Anik 2 flying again. If we didn't get that income, if we didn't fly the airplanes, the Anik 2 would be a wreck and would be lost, for example. So... Flying them is a means of keeping them in the air. Uh, on the other hand, they are heritage items. Most of the Shuttleworth airplanes are unique, so there's a good argument for putting them in the shed and leaving them there. On the other hand, if you look at any museum airplane, and certainly most of the Shuttleworth airplanes, ask yourself how much of it is it, how much of it is, in fact, original. The covering isn't, because that rots in about 20 years. Most of our aircraft are covered in plastic. Heat shrink. <laughs> but don't, don't tell anybody for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> but they're the right shape. And I think it's as important to show the sight and sound of the airplanes in the air as it is to have them in a museum. And whether it affects the longevity of the airplane, flying it or not flying it, in one case they're serviced and looked after, in the others they might be left and not, is the moot point. So in summary, I come down on flying them, obviously, uh, but if the owner wants to keep it in the museum, the LVGC6, we flew it at Shuttleworth for some years, um, the owner wanted it back and he wanted it in the museum, so that's where it is and it will never fly again. But at least some people have seen it fly. How do you feel about replicas? Um, provided they're authentic, I think it's a good thing because you get shapes in the air that you wouldn't yes. normally have. Mm -hmm. 
So you're quite happy about the idea of making replicas and flying them? Well, if we didn't have a replica Sopwith triplane mm. in the collection, and a replica Bristol monoplane, and a replica Bristol box kite, and a replica Sopwith uh, Avro triplane, you wouldn't have seen them fly. <laughs> <laughs> right. For example. Okay, Harry. Two questions, really. Uh, the first one is um, thinking of other people's airplanes. I mean, there's a lot of airplanes in the States, for example. Ryan Beck, I'm thinking of. Do you swap notes uh, with these, uh, um, shall we say, international people? I haven't been to Ryan Beck or uh, Ferti Alley, personally. Uh, but uh, two years ago, two of our engineers spent a week at Rhinebeck uh, operating their airplanes in display and came back with some very good ideas. Yeah. And we're hoping that some of the Rhinebeck engineers will come and visit us in the same way. Um, several people from La Ferte Alley, or we've hosted several people from La Ferte Alley at Old Warden. And that, again, should lead to a reciprocal visit. Uh, second question. Um, we talked just now about replicas. What replica would you like to see which, you, which isn't, doesn't exist at the moment? Um, the one that I would like to see in the air is the Fop Wolf 190, but they're building that at the moment. So what other one could we get? That was the wrong answer. He's a Handley Page. I was going to say what? <laughs> <laughs> I, should have I, known I, that, actually, because we have met under that context. <laughs> I, I, I saw you operate a, a, a rather small span uh, yeah. um, uh, glider, uh, well, Page power Sayers. glider, you remember that, the, the Sayers. Would you like to see that one? I've got, um, well, they, they described the Handley Page Sayers as having all of, the good, all of the bad points of the Wren and none of the good ones, didn't they? And the Wren's not exactly a performant <laughs> machine. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, let me have another one before come in again. Um, how, about, how about flying old twins? Um, every now and again a twin is lost because of engine failure and the question seems to arise, you know, were the people involved experienced enough in handling that contingency? And in some cases, of course, if you get an engine failure, there's nothing you can do anyway, is there? It's a philosophy of operation. Um, my philosophy at Old Warden and the philosophy that I like all the pilots to fly at is that you never put the aircraft in a position where you can't do something about a problem should it occur at any time during the flight, which on a single-engine airplane means that you only fly it in such a way that you can force land it if the engine quits. So the DH-53, for example, which has got an ABC Scorpion, which is as, probably as reliable as at failing as it is at running, <laughs> it's broken the back of one of our pilots and put another one upside down in an onion field for 40 minutes uh, over the years. So, Pat Desmond's done some flying in it, haven't you? Not getting a nod. Um, but, uh, hello. The, uh, that particular aeroplane, because it's got a very short nose and it's a propensity to fail, we only fly it when there is forced landing conditions. Uh, i.e. the crops are down, the ground is hard. If, if the, the conditions aren't such that we've got an area to force land the airplane in, then we just hop it. Mm. Uh, if you operate twins in the same way, then you should operate the twin in such a way that when the engine fails, and it's a when, not an if, mm. then you should have enough speed to um, fly away from the failure. 
and following the accident with the mosquito <coughs> in particular, there was a review of civil aviation air display safety the following winter and suitable words went into the air display manual uh, in respect of safety speed because aircraft, the older aircraft should be flown to a safety speed whereas the modern aircraft are flown to VMCA because in modern airplanes you can fly away with full power at mm. almost any speed but with the old airplanes if you're at low speed and you put full power on then you lose control of the airplane mm. so mm. there's a subtle difference in the way they're operated but if you operate the airplane in such a way that when the engine fails you've got to get out clause then you shouldn't have a problem does that answer the question? I think so, thank you it comes down to sim sympathetic operation yes, yes, yes um, any more? The front row so in the front row in the corner front, front row do you have any minimum ratings and hours for your pilots currently? Minimum? Uh, ratings and hours for the uh, There's no minimum hours, but the, the normal minimum qualification is test pilot. And in order to get that, you need to be a service pilot, have done an, at least one operational tour, got an above average or exceptional rating, 1,000 hours first pilot, uh, having completed the, one of the Western World's test pilot courses. Notwithstanding that, we've got, of the 17 pilots in the collection, um, three of them are non-TPs, uh, two of them are quite experienced service pilots, uh, one of the pilots is a self-improver. But the normal minimum is test pilot, and I insist on that because we can. We get enough pilots of that level without having to go elsewhere. It's not a prerequisite, it's not an essential prerequisite, but it's one of those things where you can set the level high and if you get enough people at that level then why change mm, thank you um, no you had a question <laughs> first time I saw the Blackburn fly I thought gee that was old it was in 1963 <laughs> 40 years ago <laughs> <laughs> any more one at the back two at the back uh, sorry Andy a question slightly outside your lecture um, with regard to the DeSuta, um, is the flutter solved and what caused it in the first place? Uh, yes, it is. I'll go back to the picture, if I may. Unfortunately, you can't see it on there. Um, it was put down to slack aileron cables. It was a symmetric flutter of the ailerons and the wing. So both ailerons were going up and down in sympathy together. and The wing was fluttering in that mode at the same time. Uh, it had been a particularly hot build-up to that particular display and uh, the aileron cables certainly afterwards were very loose. The, both ailerons were drooping at about uh, 10 degrees after landing. Uh, the ailerons fluttered about plus or minus 15 degrees, 30 degrees total, and the wing was fluttering in sympathy about plus or minus 5 degrees. Um, this is a DeSuta Mark I. The DeSuta Mark II had aileron mass balances. We couldn't use those because uh, the hinge line on ours was different. Uh, Dodge Bailey and, help me, Tony Dowson. <laughs> Dodge Bailey and Tony Dowson did some quite significant work uh, tied up with Glasgow University, uh, looking at the fundamental flutter modes of the wing. Uh, it was cured with mass balancing, and what they had to do was find out where the nodes and anti-nodes were on the aileron and the wing system. 
Uh, Tony did a lot of the engineering work. Um, there was a group came in that measured the static vibration modes of the wing. Uh, Glasgow University crunched all the numbers in a computer model and came up with a position on the aileron for the balance weight. Dodge Bailey did it empirically and came up with exactly the same position. That convinced the Civil Aviation Authority that we'd got the balance weight in the right place. Um, similar tests were done on the amount of balance weight. We eventually used a Hornet Moth arm and lump, and we fixed it at the outer part of the aileron underneath the wing. Uh, we convinced the Civil Aviation Authority that it was safe to fly. Um, Dodge did the test program. He flew with the hinges removed off the door of the airplane uh, with a parachute on so that if it did go into flutter and break up, then he was out beside the airplane. Uh, he did the testing at various speeds throughout the envelope, uh, putting harsh inputs into the ailerons to try and get them to flutter. He couldn't. Did the tests at medium, high and low speed and uh, medium, high and low tensions on the ailerons. Um, it all came out serviceable. And we have ended up with cable tension limits on the ailerons that are checked before flight, before we fly the airplane. So we now believe it can fly safely. I believe Dodge and one of the Glasgow engineers are doing a paper on it to present at some point somewhere. Does that answer the question? <laughs> right, thank you. There was another one just over by you. Um, thank you. Uh, what advantages or disadvantages would having uh, three pairs of wings have given a World War I fighter pilot? And how, would, how does the um, Sopwith triplane, how would it have compared to its German equivalent? Um, I can't answer how it compares to the German because I haven't flown the German airplane. Uh, but the German airplane was based on the Sopwith. The, uh, we designed the triplane to start with, and uh, one crashed in German territory. They plagiarized it and produced the Fokker triplane. Um, regarding the advantage, it gives more lift. It increases drag, certainly, but it gives more lift, and lift gives you turning ability, and turning ability was the prime in uh, the fighter of the day. And it certainly does give more lift. There's lots of it. Lift to spare. Well, just one or two more, and then we must uh, draw to a conclusion, I think. Anybody who hasn't yet spoken who particularly wants to do so? Yes. Thank you, Barry. To uh, add a bit to your exhortations in flight manuals, or pilot notes, rather. Um, I used to fly a Fiesler Stork at one time, and it, I had a copy of the German flight, uh, the, the German pilot's notes. And amongst other things, it showed that there was a rollout distance in still air of 34 meters, which was quite good. Now, the exhortation, loosely translated, said, uh, just because this aircraft has got a magnificent landing performance is no excuse for seeking out the worst field. <laughs> 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 Very good. Very good. Hello, John. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, a friend of mine, responding to John Ward, who used to be Secretary of Gasco, was flying Lysanders operationally in 1940. I was engaged in dive bombing German field guns off Calais. How would you feel about that sort of behavior? Right, he actually did dive bomb with a Lysander. 
I should imagine, I have to say, I should imagine it would be very good because the field of view from the cockpit is phenomenal. So there's no reason why you couldn't see, see the target. Acceleration is very good. Um, with the flaps and slats, when you're pulling out of the dive, then the flaps and slats are going to go to the ideal position to give you the right amount of lift to get out. So I should imagine it would be quite good. The, the one that I would have difficulty in is going to a short strip at night in France with somebody shooting at me. <laughs> right, one more, if any. Right, we're, we're, we're over, I think. Um, well, I think we've had a fascinating evening this evening. We've had all sorts of points raised, both uh, within the talk and after. Uh, I detect, generally, an atmosphere of enjoyment and great interest. Um, and, of course, a very fine tribute has been paid to our speaker um, uh, during the course of that. Um, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to have had you here talking about these things, Andy. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And we do like to give our speakers a small memento of their, their visit. And it's my pleasure now to do just that. So from the historical group, here we are. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very Wonderful much indeed. Talk.